0: Hi, I'm Jennifer Palmieri, and welcome to Just Something About Her from The Recount and iHeartRadio. On this podcast, I talk to powerful women about how they made it to the top on their own terms. Here to help me introduce our next guest is my producer, Sari Soffer.
1: All right. We have Samantha Power on this week, who you've known for quite some time now, right?
0: Yes. We first met in the Obama White House when I was Deputy Communications Director and then Communications Director, and Sam was on the National Security Council staff and then became our UN Ambassador in the second term. And I would add that she was the only woman who was on the UN uh, Security Council at that time. One thing that struck me about Samantha is she just never seemed to be uncertain of herself. You know, she always approaches things with kindness, but just a lot of confidence. And, you know, where does that come from? Sometimes it's it's not a qualities that all, all women are able to master and as sam explains in her book which is fantastic by the way
1: yes it is called the education of an idealist yeah
0: it's so good it's long and as you know i read in three days
1: i feel like i learned so much from everything she had to say
0: yeah i couldn't put it down
1: (laughs) well since we both read the book to give everyone else a catch-up on it she emigrated here from ireland when she was nine years old with her mother and her brother She grew up in Pittsburgh and then moved to Georgia. She played basketball in high school, was very into sports growing up, ended up going to Yale, thought she was going to be a sports journalist. And it was the moment that she watched Tiananmen Square that she became activated to fight for human rights.
0: I became aware of her because she wrote a book, A Problem from Hell, about genocide. And that book, her very first book, won a Pulitzer Prize. And Obama read it. <laughs> and Obama read it. When he was a
1: senator. Yeah. When
0: he was a senator. And that's how they met. And I've just seen it. He really values her input so much. It's very cool to see not just a woman be so valued by the president, but a woman who was from very outside the mainstream of, you know, establishment, foreign policy world. The interplay between her and President Obama and now her and President Biden, she can be super annoying and she totally owns it because <laughs> she just, she can't let it go. She's just always going to argue the point, argue the point, And she's the conscience in the room.
1: I told you that I was reading Obama's book in the middle of doing research for the interview. And yeah. I literally opened up to the page where he was talking about how Samantha was bothering him. And he said, what did I do wrong
0: today? <laughs> The book is all filled with anecdotes of like, I saw the president coming down the hallway. I knew he just wanted to talk about sports, but I couldn't help myself. <laughs> <laughs> and now she's going to be, she's been nominated to be President Biden's head of USAID, which is the Agency for International Development. It's part of the State Department. Mm-hmm. It's one tool in the toolbox. She really hasn't been able to use and the power of using uh, development aid to try to, aid democracy so that these countries that have so much turmoil you know just it's a way to make them more stable i think it's gonna be a really interesting episode yeah also how great is it that her name is samantha power samantha power name applies
2: ambassador samantha power so good to see you thanks for coming on i am so happy to be here congrats on everything you are ruling the world. I'm very excited that you're going to go back to running
0: the world as the administrator for the Agency for International Development. Should you be so fortunate as
2: to be confirmed? Because I know we can't- Get ahead of the Senate. (laughs) The things you and I have learned in our careers. I know. People say, isn't bureaucracy driving you crazy like in the Obama administration? Yeah. And I would say, I'm the president's human rights advisor. I am the greatest beneficiary of bureaucracy and process because if there's no rule of inclusion, these issues will be the last <laughs> to be included. And so there is a logic. Yeah, I had to learn that
0: too. I mean, I had your book, your memoir, which I read yes. in three days, Samantha Power. <laughs> you to know. Makes me so happy. I could not put it down. You put us the education of an idealist. And I sort of came at it from a different perspective, which was I was in the Clinton White House. You were out as a war correspondent covering the Balkans, you know, from that perspective, hoping that your work would push the Clinton White House to operate. I was very much like inside the establishment system, but always optimistic. I wouldn't necessarily say idealistic, but always optimistic. And I feel At the end of this, as I think you did from Education of an Idealist, your memoir, you know, how things are really hard, but I sort of understand it all better now. And however hard it is, is however hard it is, it doesn't mean it's not worth doing. Is that, you know, where you come out on this?
2: We all tell ourselves we're no different, but I feel very continuous with my past self, with the self that would have been critical of all of you inside. And in the same way that when I was in the administration, While externally, of course, I would have to defend whatever administration policy was, I could be critical of where we landed. You know, my brain and my heart didn't shut down just because I was wearing a badge. You know what I mean? Like, I brought that same agenda. And I think it was so great, and you did this, too, in, in writing your book, Out of Government. But when you go back over it all and try to distill the lessons, you actually realize, I think, for many of us, is that our ideals don't change. It's about how we go about prosecuting them. Right. For me, I mean, this is such a girl lesson, but in working a kind of challenging portfolio, these human rights challenges, yeah, there's a lot of gravity going in the other direction. And so it could feel like pushing water uphill. And so I just at some point realized I just have to be so prepared. I have oh, to right? whatever the reading is for the meeting. I have to read that and call five experts or make sure that my team has Gone that extra mile. Yes. (laughs) And so that's an example of a lesson. Now you could say, well, surely preparation was something that you would have known going into any job is important. And it's true. But the hardest thing in any job is to take time out of your schedule of doing to kind of build the enabling environment. So to invest in relationships. Yes. All of that matters. It matters so much. But all that relationship building is at the expense of what feels urgent in the moment. And yet, If I want to push water uphill and if I want to be, at least I'm not going to be effective all the time, but if I'm going to optimize, those investments of time are really important. So I feel my ideals are the same. I mean, frankly, if you're not an idealist in 2021, meaning you don't look around and say we can do better you're not paying attention, (laughs) you know, like you don't have a pulse, right? I mean, irrespective of your politics, right? Nobody can be happy with where we are right now. And so that means implicitly you have a set of ideals against which you're measuring the messy, divided present. And I think the biggest leap for so many of us is, okay, we get that the world should change, but do we have the gumption to think that we have something to do with that? You know, I think that's, for me, and why I wrote the book was to say— I, too, had those doubts, right? Like, we all have those doubts at every point. I mean, even now, established in our careers, I'm about to go into USAID. Every time, one has to silence what I call in the book the bat cave. Yeah, the bat cave. That was really good. Yeah, all those demons that are in your head, right? That helped me. Can you explain the bat cave briefly? Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know if there's a gender dynamic to it, like whether Mm -hmm. women are more prone to it than men. But I think women are more prone to admitting it than men, so I'll say that. My vast empirical research leads me to believe that. Actually, where I I think probably in retrospect, I first began to recognize that my head would get in the way of myself often was in romance, right? Where you're Mm. kind of talk yourself out of something that might be good, or my brother, I think, coined the expression, scavenger hunt for the fatal flaw, you know, where you're kind of, you know, looking at something you're kind of assessing. And and so I was doing that a lot and ended up doing a fair amount of therapy to understand like what in my childhood was making me put myself in perpetual motion and not right. really take care of the personal side of my life as I was driving hard professionally. And so I write a fair amount about that in the book. I know a little bit about that. <laughs> we all do. I mean, who doesn't, right? Yeah. But then I went and had worked Basically, for most of my career, on my own, I was a war correspondent in Bosnia with a group of female friends who were still right. my closest friends. This pack of us, we were all freelancers, but there was a kind of honor among thieves. Then I came back and I went to law school and ended up working while in law school on a book that became A Problem from Hell on American Responses to Genocide. That Obama would go on to read later. But there I started teaching and writing longer nonfiction pieces for the New Yorker and the Atlantic and places like that. And so. My career was going relatively well, but I was always pretty solo. Even as a teacher with students, you're, you're kind of controlling your own destiny right. a little bit. And then suddenly when Obama read A Problem from Hell and engaged me on it, and we had this immortal dinner that I think he hoped would last 27 minutes, but lasted for four <laughs> hours, you might regret to this day. But I ended up volunteering to come and work in his Senate office. Mm-hmm. And that was the first time I'd worked in a group setting in an institution. Yeah. And that's when I became really familiar with the bats in my head and like, you know, where you'd say something in a meeting and you think you'd articulated yourself properly, but then you feel maybe it went on a little bit too long or nobody engages it. And then your male counterpart maybe makes a version of the same point and suddenly everybody thinks it's the best idea known to man and... (laughs) And so you know, there's a term
0: for that. It's called bropriating.
2: Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I've never. Oh God. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Definitely yeah, going to be yeah. using that one. So there's a fair amount of bropriating going on. You know, Robert Gibbs and some of the characters in that office—strong personalities—and I was just. And
0: women react to men's voices more too, right? It's not yeah, just the men indeed. that would. Samantha has an idea. Nobody reacts. Robert has the same idea. Everybody says it's great, including the women. Like we're all
2: wired. Yeah, wired to hear men's voices completely. Yeah, but. I, I had never I had never felt so unsafe professionally, I guess it would be a, oh, a, a yeah. kind of I just felt I wasn't any good at what I was doing. I didn't feel terribly welcome except by Senator Obama, uh and John Favreau and Tommy Veter, who were in the office Yay. as well, who were who were <laughs> always great to me. But I just felt a little bit on the on the outside. And at the same time, I had just had a breakup, and so I was you know, just feeling kind of not terribly worthy of much of anything. And that's when I, I made this great friendship. It's my best friend to this day, John Prendergast, who's been in the Clinton White House. I know John. Uh, yeah, uh, I you mean, know I John. know John from Darfur work enough. Yes. Um, and that's when I first became aware me of Smith Powers because of John. Yep. Exactly. So John and I were getting to know each other then in the wake of our Darfur activism and during it, mm-hmm. because that was uh, while I was with Obama. And John said, you know, you're not alone. And he also has a father's an alcoholic, and I had come from that same environment. And he dragged me to Al-Anon meetings, which are for children of alcoholics. And you know, I was kicking and screaming, What am I doing here? This has nothing to do with me. And then mm-hmm. and not that I didn't know I had an alcoholic parent, but just the notion that some of my bats in my head would be coming from that. Anyway, it was John who said, I, John, refer to my head as a bat cave. <laughs> where the bats are like swarming and I was like, wow, that kind of lands with me, my my friend. And so in that year, as I tried to gain confidence in working in this new environment where I didn't right. feel I was on the top of my game and tried to process some of this childhood stuff that I'd let fester for a very long time, John was right there by my side. And uh, so I would just, sometimes I'd, you know, send him a note or something just saying, bat cave alert, bat, you know, <laughs> It was crazy. But what's interesting, Jen, is having put this book out there, The Education of an Idealist, you know, I've thought in book events, you know, that people would want to engage on Syria or on Obama. What was Obama really like? Yeah. And way more people want to talk about the bat cave. What's so
0: genius about it is that the bats are not part of you. You're just in the cave. There are these things floating about. They're always going to be there. Right. So it's like you're able to ignore them some because you understand they're just distraction. They're just bats flying around. They don't mean anything. I found it really useful.
2: Yeah, well, we can thank John for that.
0: Yeah, that's good. See, it's not just a woman thing. Yeah, yeah, it is. You know, you talked about, you talked about preparation. You said that might be a girl thing. You know, you're over preparing, and I think it might be. But you're right that your issues can be like catastrophic in, in nature and in the impact that they have on human rights. They're rarely at the forefront, so you had to be that agile. <laughs> to know as much and prepare as much so that you can like find the place where you can make your point, which is sort of a extreme version of what I think a lot of women go through. And, you know, what I tell them, because you know one woman I was talking to was like, well, maybe I don't need to prepare as much as I do. And I was like, whoa, it's your business that you're running or whatever, right? You want to be that good. Maybe you don't have to work that hard, but that's a really valuable skill that you developed. And don't drop it now. It's going to make you be the best version of yourself.
2: No, completely. And when young people... Particularly young women say, mm-hmm. you know, I want to go into human rights, or I want to, I want to go into diplomacy, or I want to go into public service, or I just want to make a difference. And they'll say, "What's the number one lesson you would impart?" And this is peripherally related to what you were talking about, but I think can importantly connected. Yeah, you know, I'll just say, know something about something. <laughs> just know something about something, because in a way, and especially with our gadgets and our short attention spans, which are getting ever shorter, there is a way in which we all are getting broader and more kind of clued in at a relatively superficial level to a lot of things. And there's virtue in that. I mean, it gives you peripheral vision, it gives you context, but you know, it's a wonderful thing when you come across somebody who's made themselves at a young age, like an expert on ocean plastics, (laughs) right?
0: (laughs) Right. Or as you did at the beginning of your career when you created that timeline on the Balkans, right? Exactly. What was that
2: called? That was called Breakdown of the Balkans. Thank you for uh-huh. asking. My my first publication, uh, a little kind of Kinko special, but I was an intern at the Carnegie Endowment in Washington and was trying to, just in order to be a good intern, working for this great former diplomat, Morta uh-huh. uh, tried to just not humiliate myself and be a good supporter of him. And so... Self-educated, because I knew very little about the wars in the Balkans when they began. And as I self-educated, I realized, wait, like lots of other people, not only in Washington, but all around the world are coming new to this also. And yes, they're reading dense history books or Rebecca West or whatever, but they probably also want, you know, kind of pocket guide to what's happening. But Carnegie did end up taking this stapled concoction of mine, uh, which was just a chronology of how... The war had come about, taken from the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, I mean, nothing fancy. And it ended up, you know, flying off the shelves because so many people were trying to get smart. But like no one wanted exactly to advertise that because you want to be credible in making your recommendations if you're a columnist or a member of Congress. Right. And so, you know, there'd be these quiet orders for copies of this. But it's just a, it's, a, again, a reminder that at every the highest levels, we're just continuing to have to reinvent ourselves and come fresh yes. to issues. And that, and that's yeah. why I say know something about something because, yes, for me, it was Bosnia. I ended up spending, right. you know, three years just thinking about nothing but what was happening in the Balkans. And my parents thought, Jesus, she's learning Serbo-Croatian, She's moving over there. What good is this going to do her?
0: Right.
2: Well, I learned how to write on a deadline. You know, I yeah. learned how the UN worked. I learned how the Cold War, the aftermath of the Cold War was playing out with Russia and the U.S. And so these were because I was interested in foreign policy, things that mattered to me. I learned, Mm -hmm. you know, how photographers captured images that made meaning out of things. I learned how to bridge distances between something far from the lived experience of people I was trying to read. You know, all these things that grew out of like the universe in a grain of sand. Right. Things that you could learn almost only by going deep. But I could have gone deep in deforestation or I could have gone deep in mechanical engineering. I just, as Mm -hmm. it happened, I went deep in that other thing. And I think that's even when I have the opportunity to hire If and when I get to USAID, I look forward to doing it. If you're so fortunate. If I'm so fortunate, (laughs) Senate willing. You know, I'm so impressed with people who've done that. And I just, I can intuit that even if they work on, if I have to assign them to something totally different, you know, having mastered how to learn and and how to be effective, that translates, that carries.
0: I remind where you're like, you know, your parents are like, what good is this going to do her? She's like learning all this random stuff is the stupid Obamacare website experience, you know, where we brought in Jeff Science, Andy Slavitt, like Tara McGinnis, who is my colleague on communications to fix the stupid website. And it was like, seemed like such a small thing, but really it was about solving a, you know, delivery system problem, right? And those three are now dealing with this historic pandemic. Because that's what they learned, right? They learned how to do that. The Obamacare website didn't work, right? So it's like, you know, you can go deep on something and it can be valuable in ways you don't expect. That's a great example, yeah. But then also just hearing you talk about how you can learn, make me think of your X-Factor lesson from the book, which I thought was really great. Can you tell us about that? Okay, this I think is...
2: um, It's really good advice. ...really helpful and it snuck up on me. So this is not something that if I talked to you even... 15 years ago, Jen, that I would have said, oh, I got this X test and let me tell you about the X test. (laughs) But I was doing it intuitively without naming it. And that's where Mm -hmm. going back over one's experience, again, in the spirit of hopefully inspiring, but also saving people the bother of having to (laughs) learn everything that we had to learn and, and go through. So what I realized only retrospectively that I had been doing is that when at a crossroads And I realize there's some privilege in what I'm saying, right? This is a way of thinking that comes from having opportunities of this nature. But often one is inclined to kind of be intimidated by something new, almost by definition, and maybe a little bit kind of make the best the enemy of the going for it. And so the first time I ever did this, I think, was when I went to Bosnia. It was after I'd been an intern in Washington, Mm -hmm. uh, right out of college, and I just felt I wanted to go and I wanted to learn and I wanted to try my hand at becoming a journalist. And that was a big leap. I mean, now it looks oh, so inexorable. And because I went there, then I wrote a book on genocide then Obama read and then Obama, in, right. and, and, you know, but that first move, right. was so big. Yeah. And my mother was sort of pretending she was worried about my career, but was worried about my safety. And so that was like the first real tension I'd had with her And so I said to myself, okay, if the threshold that I have to cross, in addition to crossing the Atlantic and getting into a war zone, is I'm going to become a great journalist or even a successful journalist, yeah. there's no guarantee of that. I may suck. There may be no opportunities. You know, this is really a challenging thing I'm going to do. So let me lower my sights. And this would now, these days, be called growth mindset, I suppose, as I'm now a mother and, and trying to think about how to talk to my kids. Less about results. And even Uh in that case, like who you end up writing for, and more, what are you going to get out of it? How are you going to be different at the end of it? And so the X test that I posed without branding it as such was if all I get out of this is X, will it have been worth it? And so that's where I said to myself, well, I'll learn to write more quickly. You know, it'll be an adventure. I'll learn a new language. Yes, it's not a language I'll ever use anywhere else, unfortunately. But Even the act of learning a language is, it could be, you know, there's its own thing. Mm -hmm. So my point is like, there's a, Cass would call, my husband is Cass Hunstein, and he talks a lot about behavioral science. They're now infiltrate our family and our marriage, but he would call this mental accounting. What is the mental account you give yourself to get out of the starting gate? And so when I met Obama years later, and by then was teaching at the Kennedy School and I had health insurance Mm -hmm. for the first time. You had written a Pulitzer Prize winning book. I had written a book. Like things were, (laughs) things were (laughs) great. That wonderful Pulitzer Prize. Your first book. My first book, true. But you will appreciate right before this immortal, for me, Obama dinner happened and my life was rerouted. Having been on the waiting list for years, I got in a season tickets package to the Red Sox to Fenway. (laughs) So things were really looking up for me. And yeah. there I am with Obama. And okay, yes, people would say, oh, he's going to be president one day. But I mean, I was a journalist and a critic. That was not where my head was going. I asked him, are you going to run for president? He'd just been elected to the Senate. He's like, who would do that? So soon after. Can you mm-hmm. imagine what kind of guy? I don't even to said it for fifteen minutes. Who would have the nerve to do that? <laughs> exactly. And I don't believe that that was a lie. I believe it's what he believed at the time, or or you know. He also went through the education of an idealist. Big time. No, in fact, when he was working on his book, Promised Land, before it had that title, and I was a little further along on mine, and he had a lot more to cover. <laughs> obviously, I said, "Well, what do you think you're going to call it?" And he's like, "Well, I don't know what I'm going to call it, but what it is is the education of an idealist." Oh, sweet. But anyway, when I was with Obama at that dinner, the X-Test reasserted itself, right? It's like, okay, everything's good right now. I'm going to rip everything up to go and effectively intern in this person's office because he didn't have a proper job for me. And what if it doesn't work? And what if, again, what if I'm not any good at it? Or what if I'm not welcome? Or what if, you know, I don't know. Like, I don't know why it's so intimidating to imagine taking a leap, but just transitions are really, really hard. I think when you're young, they're easier. And I think as you get older, as you get established, then it's like to be the new kid again and have to rebuild everything. But regardless, I was at that precipice. And I said, look, you know, come on. Why am I putting so much pressure on this question? If all I get out of it is to learn how the Senate works on foreign policy, if all I get out of it is to put a little bit of a break as best the Senate can be when the Mm -hmm. Republicans are controlling it, On George W. Bush's war on terror and some of the excesses there, or feel like I have a hand in that, compared to just teaching the same class I taught last year and grading papers, like it's worth it. And then I'll bring that, I'll bring what I learned back into the classroom. And so the mindset is it's just sort of less, what am I going to achieve and how's it going to go? And more, what will I take away? How will I be different on the back end of this period of time? And it helps me to bound things also and and not feel as if infinity is ahead but to say to myself, I'll give this, you know, this period of time. And again, this is from a position of some luxury. It's harder when you have people who are dependent on you and now ripping my my family out of the, the comfort of Concord, Massachusetts and moving them to Washington. I mean, it, the costs of making these career shifts go up, right? The more yeah. you have dependence on you, whether aging parents or kids or loved ones. But that calculus now includes many, many more variables than it might have as a young person. But, you know, young people just They want to know kind of the five-year plan. Right. It's like, look, let's just think about what this next thing is and how you will be better off for having done, how you will be changed. Right. And that's a good year. That's a good day.
0: Yeah. My version of that is, will I be around smart people that I can learn from? Which is a perfect segue to what I want to ask you about next, which is the Wednesday night wine nights uh, you had with top women on the national security team in Obama's White House. And we will get to that after the break with Ambassador Samantha Power on Just Something About Her. Welcome back to Just Something About Her with Samantha Power, former journalist, human rights activist, and UN ambassador. I mean, to give people a sense of your background, you emigrated here when you were nine from Ireland. Grew up, you know, went to high school in Georgia, which I did not know. I had no idea about that. Was a big sports fanatic, thought that was going to be your career, and then became taken with human rights and genocide.
2: Yeah, I was a sports, I'm still a sports nut. And I played every sport, and I loved playing, I loved watching, I loved talking about, and so what a perfect... Way to be happy, it seemed, you know. So I was the play-by-play voice for the Yale women's basketball team and did color commentary for the Yale men's team in college. And I was on a sports talk show uh, a half an hour a night called Sports Spotlight with a group of guys and, you know, talk radio. With a group of guys. With a group of guys, yeah. There were no women at that point, yeah. I feel
0: like your sports background may have helped to be kind of fearless in the workplace that way.
2: I mean, the next probably the only analog to Sports Spotlight and the kind of sports department at WYBC in New Haven was the Obama White House. Yeah, man. And, and, the, and the boys. So I guess... Sounds like a meeting in the Oval. Uh, sounds like a meeting in the Oval. Uh, yes. I don't write in the book, by the way, about... My favorite moment, but I'm sure it's come up on your podcast before. But what was amazing about Jen and my experience, and I'm projecting here, but at at the at the White House was we were working with these incredible feminist men, you yeah. know, really progressive men, and yet the blinders, and frankly, the blinders on me, you know, the blinders yeah, so on. We all, we all hold this. We all hold this in our head. Yeah. But it was immortalized when during the fiscal cliff negotiations, Pete Souza put out, you know, quite compelling photograph in a a range of ways. Sort of from behind Obama's chair, we would see the back of Obama's head. And then I think a dozen advisors, all white men, except for Rob Neighbors, I think, who was in charge of Ledge, maybe at that point, uh, Legislative Affairs. And it just went out and nobody, it was like a crisis photo. It was was impressive. And who had to deal with it? The girl. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, so I want to hear. It. Let me finish the story and then you tell what happened. So, someone thought, not only someone, lots of people thought it was a good idea to put this photo out. Had I been in the press office, I would have put the photo out. It's a crisis photo, not even noticing. And it might have even been more than 12 people, but that there were no women in the photograph. And at, during a crisis, there's the economic team, the communications team. Yeah. So, someone sent it out. People went crazy. And then someone thought it was a good idea to say, no, no, no. You people overreacting to this photo of 12 dudes. Valerie Jarrett is in this meeting. If you just look carefully behind Dan Pfeiffer's thigh and his brown corduroys, you will see Valerie Jarrett's black tighted <laughs> knee. You will see her leg. And, and that's where Jody Cantor tweeted Valerie Jarrett's leg as metaphor, you know. And someone was like, no, no, we're good. We're good. Look at her. Look, look at her look. knee. She's there. Like, like check it out. Anyway, but it changed, started, started to change. I feel it like did. that was, it was like you No, know, it didn't. And I think because
0: of the problem with, you're right. Like these guys are super, they're all feminists and they're all progressives. And that makes you, because you're so certain that you are not a sexist, you can be blind to biases because you, you're yes. so certain that you don't
2: feel that way. And this would be the other thing that I've learned. I think, I don't know this for a fact, but I bet you learned long ago. And I just was late to this realization, but I didn't even know the gender dynamics that were at play. In the Obama White House, insofar as other than working in his Senate office and just assuming like it's me, not them, right. <laughs> For most of the time there, but then getting in touch, trying to slay the bats and, and <laughs> right. you know, get getting, you know, had friends saying, No, no, like it's them, like they should be, you know, should be that way and like trying to buck yeah. me up. It didn't leave me with a great feeling, that experience. And then I get to the Obama White House, my first time in the executive branch. I'm pregnant. I at that time, mean, five months pregnant. Just gotten married, pregnant. That part was nice because he was working in the same place. So we got to, he got to carry my books to work. <laughs> uh, and when I fainted pregnant twice, he could run down the hall and and come and figure out why the hell I wasn't drinking more water. But I was, as mentioned earlier, doing human mm-hmm. rights, which is a, a tough national security portfolio and a, and a wonderful one. And I was not as Cass and I, Cass developed this taxonomy, which was every night when we left, he would make us walk yeah. by the White House, the front of the White House, so we could remember where we worked and and knowing the days where it could be very tough. The taxonomy was effective, not effective, respected, not respected. And so I would kind of wallow out at night and be like, not effective, <laughs> not respected, <laughs> you know? And he'd be like, Respected, not effective, or effective, not respected. Like he was, I was usually in the lower left yeah. hand quadrant of where both, both, and I thought it was me. And then a colleague of mine, Liz Sherwood Randall, yeah. who is mm-hmm. now Joe Biden's Homeland Security Advisor, gathered the female senior directors on the national security team. There were six of us out of 26. Yeah. I didn't even know, I wouldn't have even known the number. It didn't even, I wasn't even like, I sound like Stephen Colbert, like I didn't see gender. I just wasn't thinking and that way. Right.
0: By that point, I was further along and seeing it all than you were. But I know what you're talking about. You're just making your way through your career, and it's going pretty well, and you just don't see any of this. I wasn't And then something this. happens that
2: brings it into relief. You, well, in this case, it actually, for me, was Liz saying, let's get together. Mm-hmm. And she brought a bottle of wine. I'll never forget it. like, oh, that's time for wine. Right. You, know, you know, this was a year in already. Right, so I'd already had my baby. I'd already like lived with like trying to hide being pregnant in the early months, thinking that I wouldn't be given you know right. plum assignments or so. I'd done all the crazy stuff that I can't believe I did and regret doing, and encourage people listening not to do. And <laughs> you know, I was back and nursing and sprinting across the street and unbuttoning my shirt as I was walking across uh, or running sometimes across Seventeenth Street, and she just convened us and she's like, "All right, we're gonna have a glass of wine." And bear in mind that national security offices are safes, so right. you have to turn like a large dial to get into the office. It was totally surreal. These wine glasses—it's basically red like walking wine. into and a vault. You're, yeah, you're walking into a vault and thinking, "Okay, this is going to be fun." And we sit down, and virtually every experience that I had had that I thought was the product of me being a novice or me mm-hmm. doing human rights, mm-hmm. the other women had as well. Yeah, I mean, it was. Surreal, like I was probably silenced, which is not my my natural state for much of the forty five minutes or hour that we were there for that first. These are the most
0: senior women at the National Security Council, and
2: and the same issues of appropriation. Now that I have the lingo (laughs) of ideas, sort of landing like thud of gendered metaphors. I I know I use the expression we can't be half-pregnant, and I'm sure I used it when I was half-pregnant. I term. So, like, all these things kind of slipping in, and it's just sort of subtle, either invisibility or insufficient visibility. Mm-hmm. That feeling of being dismissed without it even being explicit or just not being fully heard or being heard charitably. I mean, Oof. that's... Like, i I've lived the difference, yeah. right? Because I was in for eight years, so I went from being... You know, newcomer, human rights person, woman, to cabinet official, UN ambassador, you know, with a detail with the whole, you know, my jokes got funnier, you know, my (laughs) interventions didn't get fun when
0: you're announced by a secret service detailing your jokes are funny. It's so well, there's that. I
2: yeah, but it's not even the intimidation. It's that we know what it's like when we're listening to people generously. But what Liz understood that I did not understood is that that time investment. Which just seemed like a luxury. I mean, who had time in national security in 2010 Mm -hmm. to go and sit and have a glass of wine or a glass of Coke or whatever you wanted, you know? And it just seemed in a zero sum world that that was at the expense of something very precious. It turns out it was fuel, it was epiphany inducing. You know, I would then go in and we started doing it every week that we were all in town and. I, I ended up not being able to, having trouble having a, a second child. I was very lucky with my first. And through round after round of yeah, been I know, <laughs> Terrible. sharing them, like showing them the big X on my upper backside where I was going to get like the million dollar shot and, you know, just creating a, a community spirit around it instead of going through all that alone and, you know, kid challenges and learning questions. And there was that solidarity because a few of us were moms. But it was almost like we were, as workers, we were like gray matter on toothpicks. You know, none of our backgrounds mattered. <laughs> yeah. You know, we were just like our brains or our ideas, you know, and for good or bad. Yeah. And and suddenly, I was about to say re-added, but it added the texture of life. And each ah. of us was a situated person with a partner, maybe, or a single life, or a child, or an aging parent, or we had the jobs that we'd had before that we could hear about how people had, you know, some war stories from prior times. I mean, no one has a, a past or a future <laughs> when you're working at the White House, right? So true. We're just all in the present.
0: You can't imagine anything that's ever going to feel more urgent. And if you can replicate that outside
2: of the White House, you can be really effective your whole life yeah yeah so just having someone who just knew that that lean on that's what you describe it i got that from hillary clinton yeah. actually because which is so
0: weird that i've never heard her say that before. here's how it went this is as opposed to leaning in it was
2: like lean on lean on other women yeah well here's how it, it went exactly like this this is why i was u.n ambassador i just saw some big gala or something where she'd spoken and and she came up and she says she's so generous to do and and said how's it going mm-hmm. and i said well I said, Joel Sandberg talks about leaning in. I don't know, for me, it's falling down. And she said, no, it's not. It's lean on. Because I was just feeling, as a mom, so Mm -hmm. inadequate. It just felt everything was in chaos. And that was me, again, with privilege, with being ambassador. You have a ton of support. We had brought our nanny from Washington, uh, Maria Castro, who was just like a magical presence in my kid's life like on one level what was I whining about you know falling down I had I had everything but it was to really underscore that if you're gonna pull it off of trying to do multiple things at once it's not gonna be alone and for women admitting that and being vulnerable and just saying yeah, yeah I can't make it on my own I need the support that fights nature that fights yeah. like the desire to look tough and strong well, and, it fights what we've been and sort of programmed to think we have to be right Completely. That's why, again, to brand it in, in the education of an idealist, I thought it was really important to say don't just have this sneak up on you that the way you got through was that you leaned yeah. on a bunch of people. Like, that's cliche. We all know that in, in retrospect. But actually think proactively, intentionally how the hell am I going to do this? <laughs> this is yeah. the, like the square does not fit in the circle. Like, where <laughs> am I? And, and I, just, I it's not going to work. So, Who are you going to lean on? What's going to be a little bit different in this phase of life, right? And then pay it forward later when you have the chance to be that person for for someone else.
0: All right. It's time for us to take a break. When we get back, I want to totally switch gears and talk about your bread and butter issue, U.S. diplomacy. That's next with Ambassador Samantha Power on Just Something About Her. And we're back with Ambassador Power on just Something About Her. I
2: want to talk about the Cold War, Samantha. Okay, Jen. I will accommodate that request.
0: (laughs) We both started our careers at the end of the Cold War. And I remember you talk about in your book Francis Fukuyama's essay, The End of History, and that people thought that when the Berlin Wall came down, communism fell, it was he wrote it was the end of history. And I remember reading that and thinking. No, it's not. <laughs> you know, they can't they can't I don't couldn't imagine what would take a place, but like that can't possibly be true. His notion right. was, you know, the Soviet Union versus the US and that the West had won, but it was replaced almost immediately by chaos. I mean, it feels to I me mean, like it's like we're 30 years into this, and I'm just very curious to know what what have you seen emerging? I mean, the first thing we really saw was chaos in the Balkans. Right, I was working, you know, for Bill Clinton, and I was in the Clinton White House. And I remember the pressure on him to act on Bosnia. People like you were in Sarajevo and other parts of the Balkans, writing about all the atrocities. What I see in the Clinton White House, we were focused on Haiti. Aristide uh, had been the newly elected leader of of Haiti. There was a military junta that had come in and was, you know, trying to take over power and. I remember watching Tony Link, who was a national security advisor at the time, and he just seemed to be so overwrought with not making a mistake. Mm. Like, how can we do this in a way that there's going to be no unintended consequences? People were so scared because a year before there had been Black Hawk Down and Mogadishu or, uh, you know, an American pilot was killed right in the streets of Mogadishu. We can't have that. And it just seemed to be kind of timid and not wanting there to be any sort of backlash or repercussions. And you seem to be someone who you you like go into this understanding U.S. intervention is going to mean that some kind of backlash, some kind of repercussions, and it may not last. It can't have a lasting impact, but we need to do it anyway. Like,
2: what do do you think about the U.S. intervention this way? Yeah, well, I mean, I think there's a lot in your question, right? So I'd just say maybe a little bit about, about each of the strands. I mean, first, I, I think after the Cold War, it was a sole superpower, period. Right. right. And it was an opportunity to rewrite the rules of the road. I think some of those opportunities were seized with George H.W. Bush, for example, expelling Saddam Hussein from yeah. Kuwait. Putting the specifics even to one side, I think that was an example of saying, okay. We're no longer in the Cold War. The international institutions are liberated now to okay. be functional again because we're no longer at gridlock. And let's use them to do something yeah. good and to enforce international law. So that was a, a positive right. example. And then in Bosnia, I think, and Kosovo, you mentioned, those are 1995 and 1999, respectively, two examples where, again, the U.S. in this sole superpower period led catalyzed coalitions of varying strength and com- different complexions. Costa was a re- reflection also of the regret over Rwanda where 800,000 people had been killed and mm-hmm. very little had been done other than actually withdrawing peacekeepers who had been present yeah. on the ground. So you have this, you might even call it, this isn't my phrase, but I've, I've heard it referred to as a security surplus oh. that the United States, you know, no longer this big engaged in. in, in yeah. uh, yes, exactly. So used it, but... You know, the world was never going to just adapt or congeal in America's image. And certainly, I think you could refer to Bosnia and Kosovo as a war of choice in the sense that there was no immediate threat to Americans posed by those wars. But even those categories are a bit blurry insofar as Osama bin Laden and a bunch of his people from Al-Qaeda trained in Bosnia, traveled on a Bosnian passport. And so I think this question in the 90s of, you know, sometimes a tendency to kind of say, well, there's the humanitarian stuff is over here. And yes, we have a security surplus, so maybe let's tend to it. But it turns out that those lines aren't that clear because in areas where we let ethnic conflict, ethnic cleansing, sectarianism fester, often that can at least be a factor in coming home to roost. And so what you see over those, the ensuing three decades now up till today is a lot of back and forth about sort of what, america should be for in the world i mean i think a general before trump a consensus that if we could play a catalytic diplomatic role we should mobilize coalitions mm-hmm. uh, burden share not carry the burden on our own nobody despite the caricature has ever been for america being the world's policeman but there is a question and i learned this firsthand at the u.n as to will anything happen <laughs> that is productive if the u.s isn't the first mover right isn't the catalyzer yeah. of action. So what's happened now of late is there are several dimensions to it. Mm-hmm. And, we, you know, this isn't a geopolitics podcast, but... Oh, but uh, it could be. You, na- you know, it could It is with you on an ambassador power. Let's yeah. go. But uh, the world is now no longer sole superpower. You had initially the rise of Europe becoming, right. uh, you know, a friendly pole in the system. Yes, uh-huh, Right. But you have the rise of an illiberal powerhouse that is Mm -hmm. China that dwarfs anything, not only that we have seen in our lifetime, but anything that America has coexisted with in the entire history of our country. You have the economic effects of globalization that were not thought through sufficiently, which is causing a backlash. And you refer to it as chaos. I think it's true it looks chaotic, but there are a lot of strands to it that are now recurrent. And in the United States. Right, nativistic, yeah. you know, nationalistic, xenophobic. And I think now where Biden is sort of trying to find that sweet spot of leading with diplomacy and development, I hope and, right. and believe. Yeah. The question is, what do we lead on? And how do we lead? And can we both confront a challenging rival like yeah. China with a totally different worldview on human rights and on the role of the state to tell you what you can do in your life? Are there areas of cooperation yep. still on pandemics or on climate that can be carved out at the same time that we hold them accountable across the board on human rights and on their efforts to change the rules of the road? It's a daunting time, mm-hmm. not only because there's so much pain in the world because of COVID and the economic aftermath, but because there has been so much backsliding, you know, since the high water marks of the post-Cold War period on human rights and on democracy. And yet I have, sort of residual optimism, not Fukuyama's level of optimism that he had. But I do think, and this is going to sound a little corny. Bring it on, sister. There's just a question of dignity and sort of whether we believe that in every human heart sort of beats the desire to be able to feed oneself and one's family, have agency over what one does. If someone is mistreating us to be able to vote them out, or hold them accountable in a court of law. And I've just traveled, not the whole world, but in lots of parts of the world. And whatever the religion is, whatever the form of government is, whether they're moving in the authoritarian direction, those kind of simple yes. longings are yeah. out there. So there are two dueling trends right now, which is yes, human rights are in retreat, no question. Illiberal leadership is on the rise, very different than what people thought after the Cold War, for sure but there were also more mm-hmm. protests, political protests, on planet Earth before COVID started in that calendar year than in any year in recorded history. People are stepping up and putting themselves out there. It doesn't it isn't to say they're protesting for things that you and I might want. I mean, sometimes mm-hmm. they're protesting against a carbon tax or things like that, but my point is that we are in a very contested period right now. And this is where the US being back on the global stage mm-hmm as I think about USAID, thinking about what are the tools that we have to support civil society and those who wish to hold their governments accountable. I mean, governments just run better when they're held accountable. You know, China may have a period where they're very effective in certain respects, certainly in pulling people out of poverty. They've been effective at getting their country out of the pandemic quicker than the rest of us, for sure. But, you know, We wouldn't have a pandemic if there hadn't been such a culture of fear and the absence of accountability in the first instance in China. If there had been an ability to raise the alarm and if those who had raised the alarm had been celebrated then instead of jailed and detained. So this battle is afoot and it's where younger generations kind of look out and they think, oh my gosh, like Jen and Samantha, like they did not leave us the greatest hand to play. And that is an absolutely legitimate view at the same time the battle is going to be won depending on who's part of it. And that's, I think, why it's so important that people take whatever they yeah. get that skill set, whatever it is, wherever yeah. your tastes take you and be part of making the change that that you seek. Ambassador Samantha Power, I am just proud to know you. Thank you so much. So great to see you. Jen, thank yeah. you for reading the book. It means the world to me. Love thank it. you. Podcast notwithstanding, just that you read it, it made me so happy. Thank you.
0: Sari, you there?
1: I loved that interview. I learned again, like I said with her memoir, I learned so much. I learned so much from her personal experience. I feel like it's super relatable.
0: Well, and also how about that like relatively short but incredibly informed? take at the end about oh totally <laughs> about let me lay out for you what has happened in the last 30 years
1: and why it matters today
0: and that why was what it was matters more, today and bringing important. it back around to why it matters in the united states i mean that was like it was incredibly cogent and it was something i had not ever heard from anyone so i'm so excited for people to hear that because
1: it's inspiring too at the end you know she's not just like this is how it affects our current world she's like this is how you can be a part of the solution yeah which brings me to what I thought was her best advice, which is yeah. know something about something. <laughs> something um, about something. Hey, yeah. <laughs> try right? it. Like, yeah. just <laughs> so learn a lot about one thing. Not only does it make you an expert on something, but it also gives you that skill to gather information, become an expert on something and become an asset to a team, a community. A White House, if you will. Yep. (laughs) And so I think that that was just such good advice.
0: Yep. And um, also the whole thing with the bat cave is a great Mm -hmm. tool for managing anxiety and doubts. Not to like objectify these things. They are not actually part of you. They are just the bats in the cave. Right. They're just doubts and they don't
1: mean anything. They don't mean that they're real. They're just doubts. Yeah. Well, I also loved how she talked about like relationship building in the Mm -hmm. workplace. I mean, she talked about it in two different ways. One, she talked about how important it is to network essentially, which is set some time to sit down with people that you know will be helpful for your career in the future and then the other one was to make sure that you're carving out time to like hang with some women who you work with yes. and have a glass of wine and talk about real issues that aren't necessarily about the work that you're doing, but about the environment that you're in or your personal lives. And
0: and lean on, lean on other women. It's great. Mm-hmm. I love that that advice came from Hillary. I also love that we didn't ask her about all the trouble she got into when she said those things about Hillary in the 2008 campaign, because that's what everyone yes. always asks her about. And that's not what we're yep. about.
1: No, and she put that to bed. She even talked about that in her book. She talked to Hillary. It was done. Yeah, all, and like uh, Hillary's
0: giving her great life advice now. Lean on. Exactly. Well, the other thing is that, like, I, I've just thought about, you know, why, as I said before at the beginning of this, it's like why uh, Samantha is able to engage with so much confidence and never seemed to me to be. Sort of plagued by doubts that, you know, I was, you know, when I worked with her and some women can be. And I, I, I do think sports is a big deal. You know, you see that time and again that having competed in that way seems to give women an extra boost. They know they're prepared. They know that they've worked hard to get where they are. Uh, mm-hmm. They have objective uh, results that show them they're good at what they do.
1: I think it was Gretchen Whitmer, possibly, that Mm -hmm. said, and they know that losing isn't that big of a deal. You've lost a bunch of times in sports.
0: Kirsten Gillibrand, that's a Kirsten Gillibrand thing. There we go,
1: that's who it was.
0: Also, Gretchen Whitmer also wanted to be a sportscaster. So I think that that's part of it, but I also think she did not, it seems that because she worked on her own for a while before she was part of an office dynamic, she did not internalize the doubts that I did when I was trying to fit into a workplace. She was like out on her own doing her own work. And I think that that probably gave her this extra boost of confidence that some of us didn't have. You know, and how she was able to make her way, moving from a genocide activist to being the UN ambassador, you know, lecturing the President of the United States uh, <laughs> about how he's not doing the right thing, is I just think that she's so authentic. And she's there is just no guile within with Samantha. There's a lot of kindness. And you just know exactly where she's coming from. And I think that is what, not just what President Obama and now President Biden value, but what makes her able to deliver really tough messages in a way that they're going to hear. And, you know, at some point, that's something all of us have to do in our career. So she's a good model for that. This is Just Something About Her, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Thank you to Ambassador Samantha Power for being on the show. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating in the Apple Podcast app. I'm your host, Jennifer Palmieri. Aliyah Jackson and D. Scott Carroll engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams handles research. Stephanie Stender is our post producer. Sari Soffer is our producer. And Christian Castro-Russell is our executive producer.